I'm Brad from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we have another conversation from our new Forward Ed Slow Conference series. Today's conversation features Christy Mraz and P. David Pearson. Christy Mraz is a teacher, writer, and consultant. She is a former staff developer with the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project and currently works as an instructional coach in grades pre-K through two. She is also the co-author of Kids First from Day One, A Mindset for Learning, and Purposeful Play. P. David Pearson is an Emerus faculty member in the Graduate School of Education at the University of California, Berkeley, where he served as dean from 2001 to 2010. His current research focuses on literacy, history, and policy. He is the author of Comprehension Going Forward and What Every Teacher Should Know About Reading Comprehension Instruction. Together, they discuss the complex infrastructure of learning and how to make nuanced instructional decisions that are student-centered, rooted in teacher experience and research. This conversation is part of Heinemann's new video series, Forward Ed, Forward Together in Education. If you'd like to watch the full video of this and other conversations, you can find them on the Heinemann Publishing YouTube channel. Here now are Christy and David. Hi everyone, I'm Christy Mraz. I am a Heinemann author, a classroom teacher, a consultant in schools, and a teacher nerd. Um, I'm out here in, in Southern California, um, enjoying the beautiful sunny weather and absolutely delighted to talk to David Pearson. And I'm gonna ask David to introduce himself um, and I'm gonna sit in rapt attention as he does. Sure, uh, thanks so much, Christy. Uh, my name is David Pearson. I'm a retired uh, faculty member at the University of California at Berkeley. I've been in the field of reading a long time, uh, 54 years if you count uh, my time as a classroom teacher in Porterville, California. And I'm I'm here in Berkeley. So this is a California day uh, uh, for uh, this uh, entire effort. And I'm thrilled to be interacting with uh, Christy about matters of import to teachers uh, all over the country and the world, really, and how we teach reading, especially to our youngest learners. So. Um, we'll only make surfing metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, I'm so excited to be talking with you because I know you through your writing. So it's like a little bit of like a super fan moment to be like, <laughs> I know this name from fancy publications. So I'm just really excited to be talking with you. And um, if it's okay, I, I just wanted to, to use this opportunity to be like a representative of teachers and people who work with teachers to just better understand how we can better serve our children as um, human beings, as, as readers, as, you know, dynamic, unique individuals. So if you wouldn't mind, I have a few questions for you. Is it okay if sure, I- Sure, I'm I, happy to uh, engage as long as I get an opportunity to ask questions back at you, Christine. <laughs> Um, you are more than welcome to. And uh, if I don't know the answer, I'll just make a joke. Okay. How I've made it through life this far. <laughs> um, David, the first thing I wanted to start with was just talking about generally, um, one of the things that often happens um, as teachers and in the in reading in particular, it feels like new information or newer information comes along. And I'm the type of person that I read something and my first thought is, oh my gosh, I've been doing it all wrong. I, um, I should probably quit 
and get a job where I can do less harm to children. Um, maybe I should look into like zookeeping, right? And I know that in the wave of information um, that's come along around the importance of phonics and phonemic awareness and mapping, I've started to think, have I been teaching reading wrong all this time? And so I just wanted to get your bird's eye perspective on that around how do I look at what feels like, it's not necessarily newer research, but research that has sort of come to the forefront at this time. How do, what do I do with that as a human being and as a teacher? Well, I think a good place to start is to remember how all people learn new things, including uh, four-year-olds and you know 24-year-olds and 44 and 84-year-olds. And that is, we learn what's new in terms of what we already know. So I'm, I, I'm thrilled to know that you're reading about new things. And I'm thrilled to know that when you read about new things, your ideas get challenged. That's good for us. Our ideas should be challenged. That's how we make progress. But we always have to uh, learn what's new in terms of what we already know. So the, the, the challenge isn't to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The, the challenge is to figure out how to have, if you will, two babies in the bathwater and, 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 and learn how they can both get clean uh, in that bathtub uh, to extend a horrible analogy. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I'm on board but, with it. I'm not going to lie. Fully on board with this bathtub so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, just because you learn something new doesn't mean it has to completely overthrow what you already know. And secondly, I'm a strong believer, even as a researcher, and I'm, I'm a data person all the way. I, I love evidence. Uh, I think when we have evidence to make decisions, we're likely to make better decisions, um, just like in the days of COVID that we're in the middle of right now as we make this recording. So I, I'm a big believer in evidence, but I also am also a big believer in trusting the wisdom of practice. I've learned so much by being a teacher and by hanging out in the classrooms of many teachers all over the country. And I'm, I'm amazed at the degree to which teachers' experiential intuitions, and, and, and they're not just intuitions, they're experiential in, in, intuitions. That means they're grounded in what they see and, 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 and interact with in, the, in their classrooms. I'm always amazed at the degree of congruence between research and teachers' intuitions about, uh, about uh, what works uh, in their particular setting. So I don't think that uh, new things are necessarily going to overthrow uh, all of the practices that we've engaged in. I think the problem is what happens to that new information. When a new idea comes out, it almost always comes packaged as the solution, the single quick fix that's going to change uh, uh, all you know, achievement around the country. And suddenly every uh, uh, six-year-old kid is going to learn to read in three months. That's seldom the case. Quick fixes, single note practices, and um, simple prescriptions seldom work because that ain't the way the classroom works. Classrooms are complex places. There's lots of stuff going on, lots of things to, to attend to, not only teaching phonics, but how do you get the kids to understand the words on the page? What do you do about vocabulary growth? How do you make sure they're fluent readers? All of those things are part of that classroom and it's complex and a simple prescription is not going to solve the problem. It, it actually reminds me sometimes what happens with like wellness fads where like all of a sudden it's like, well, if you just use CBD, like every you're going to be fixed or eat a plum every day or like 11 almonds before your <laughs> lunch, right? Where, where it can feel like, well, this, I mean, I think, you know, it's human nature for, for all of us. I think you know, we all want to do right by kids, right? And we all want to be helping them um, learn to all the things that, you know, we, they need to be successful in the world. 
it's so easy when something comes along to like say like, well, you know, to throw yourself behind it. But this idea you're saying of like, A, don't forget everything you know up to this point. And B, like you have to integrate it. Keep the other baby in the bathwater. I know you you don't love that analogy, but I actually think I'm going to beat it to death now. So you're going to now be known as David Pearson, two babies I could just see the title of the next article is uh, uh, 15 babies in the bathwater. <laughs> it's so hard to do. I, I, is that like, a, I, I mean, this question might be honest, but is that like a, a facet of human nature that's really hard to hold two things things to be true at the same time. Like, you know, it's like, it's, the, it, we have so much of an or mentality, right? And it happens a lot in schools where it goes from like, here's the new thing as opposed to the yes and mentality. Yes. Yeah. And. I, I, that's right. But it, it, my, my thing is it's not either or it's both and act. Usually that's the right, that's the right uh, stance to take. And we see it in COVID, you know, it's, it's not either masks or it's not either uh, uh, vaccinations or it's not uh, either, um, uh, social distancing, it's all those things taken together that create a, a, a package that is going to uh, get us back to uh, some semblance of normal. If and, and, and where do our problems arise? When people think that there's only one solution to the, uh, you know, to the uh, dilemma that we're facing. I mean, and so that brings me to another question that I have, um, both the classroom teacher side of me and someone who helps classroom teachers. And that I think as I'm, you know, at this time of year, what am I doing? I'm like thinking about, you know, classroom design and thinking about schedule. I'm thinking about first read aloud. The big question I have, though, is like, what's when we're thinking about reading um, and it can't be one quick fix, one of the questions I have is like, what's really worthy of kids' time? Like, what should we make sure is happening in our classroom that's that's worthy of the kiddos in front of us? Well, I'm glad you brought that up about how, how we ask kids to spend their time. And, and I think it relates to um, uh, achieving some kind of balance or rapprochement amongst all the different things that we could be doing. We could be teaching a lot of uh, letter sound correspondences. We could be teaching uh, kids how to do sequential decoding, like that uh, uh, and things like that. We could be teaching kids uh, uh, whole words. Uh, we could be, em- instead of emphasizing phonics, we could emphasize language development and vocabulary development and making sure that uh, they um, learn to speak not only the everyday, but the academic versions of English. We could focus on text comprehension and are you getting the message and are you getting the main idea? Uh, We could focus on um, uh, using what you learn from what you read to do some kind of project in the classroom or in the world. Uh, And and the answer to the question of which of those things do you is worthy of their time is it's uh, some uh, combination of all of those things. Is that really what you want? And that's the and that's the both and solution. And, And what we have to be careful of is false choices. Just because I emphasize decoding more doesn't mean I have to emphasize language development or comprehension less. Let's get out of that. It's not. It's not. You know, uh, all of one or all of the other. It's. It's uh, making sure that kids get a chance to uh, sample all the things that they need to become proficient uh, readers who can uh, read on their own uh, and learn for themselves. And so, uh, and I hate to use the word balance because it's gotten such a bad name in the public discourse about reading. But uh, I don't care what you call it. Call it balanced. Call it comprehensive. Call it a solid integrated reading program, uh, make sure uh, that everyday kids get a chance to do all of those things. And, and, and another thing you want to make sure kids get a chance to do every day what's worthy of their time 
is do some real reading, uh, uh, some real reading on their own and some real reading with their buddies. You want them to read on their own and you want them to be, be reading things uh, for which they have a high degree of competence and confidence to instill even greater confidence to make them feel like they're real readers. So give them something to read every day that they they can uh, pretty much uh, read with a high degree of mastery. But every day it's also good to read something that's uh, challenging, that uh, where, where you need a little help from your friends, maybe even your teacher, and, and, um, and uh, we figure out things together. Why? Because that enable, that gives us a chance to use our strategies to work at the edge of our competence. And that's when you need strategies to help you along, to fix things. You know, we do the first kind of reading where we're really confident and competent with it so that we experience the click of comprehension where it's, oh, I get it, I'm just doing along. It's what I call Nike reading, just do it, you know, and that's good. And every day kids should be doing that. But every day they should be doing what, what I like to call some Sherlock Holmes reading, where things become puzzling and they have to solve those puzzles. And what do you use to solve the puzzles? The skills and strategies that you've been acquiring along the way. So if skills and, skills and strategies are put to work in the, in, in the process of solving problems, that's good. The problem with teaching a lot of skill stuff, like I don't care whether it's phonics skills or comprehension skills, is we we stop at teaching the skill and we don't teach kids how to use the skill to actually solve real reading problems. Like, I don't know this word. I've been reading for two pages and I can't remember a thing I've read. And it's those clunks that the, uh, that the skills and strategies are good for. I mean, you said a lot of things there, so I'm going to put a pin and come back to them <laughs> in, multiple, in multiple moments. So, Sorry about um, that. I get wound up sometimes. <laughs> One of the things that um, so one of the things you're saying is the the is it's the combination when you were saying that I was for better or for worse that the like weird wedding thing of something borrowed something blue it almost feels like as a teacher I should be thinking about when I think about my day I'm like I want something challenging I want something uh, exciting I want something like I that, that I sort of like have this mental checklist that that my day has that balance across it and I like that I like challenge uh, I don't know what you call it challenge uh, accessible something that's really accessible something that's really challenging something where I can learn something new you know, and something where I can something uh, blue. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, something that's just so familiar that I can it's like falling off a lock. Yeah. Know? Something something that's just like um it's almost the same way when you're working out, you're trying to like build a balance of all of those pieces in it. So you're not just getting uh, you know, you're just not just building one muscle group to the point where like you can't bend your arms. If anyone's watching the Jersey Shore, I would draw your attention to any of the male characters yeah. on that show. Another uh, analogy that I use a lot with uh, teachers and administrators is is uh, summer basketball camp. If you sent kids to summer basketball camp, and I'm assuming that, that um, we're recording this in the summer, lots of kids are going to camp. And you walked into that camp and the, and the director of the camp said, well, here's how we're going to do this camp. Uh, first of all, we're, we're going to spend a week on dribbling. And when you reach 80% mastery on dri dribbling, then we'll go to defense. And when you reach 80% mastery on defense, then we'll go to layup. And then we'll go to the jump shot and the like. And you had this sort of series of skills that you had to pick up. And when you finish all that, if you do it by the end of camp, then maybe we'll have a scrimmage. Kids would leave the first day. Why? Because every day they want to play the game. Even though they haven't picked up all the skills to play it at a high level of mastery, they want to play it at the level of mastery at which they can and so it's like that in reading. Every day, you got to play the game. And playing the game involves putting eyes on print 
and working your way through that book and the like. And so uh, I like to use that because I think it's uh, it's apt in terms of how we create this balance between looking at the skills that comprise the infrastructure of reading and making sure that we, uh, oh, my metaphor, another metaphor, there's uh, you know an assembly line where you pick up the skills and then there's um, a, an orchestration part where you have to orchestrate all those skills and do something called real reading. So it's assembly line and orchestration. You know, this reminds me, I have a four-year-old um, and he, uh, he loves books. He loves looking at all kinds of books and he makes some attempts at reading and he's got a book called Where Do Diggers Sleep at Night? It is about where diggers sleep at night, but the line is always like, where do diggers go when they're done digging? Where And it's like, follows that. And he, he knows the pattern, but he gets the tractor page. And he's like, where do tractors go when they're done tracting? <laughs> yeah. And when I was watching him, I was like, ah, oh, what an amazing moment of like overuse of a of a like of a of a theory of how words work and how words are interrelated and like just a little bit of magic. Yeah, that's, a good, that's a good metaphor because what it says is that uh, he's he's testing out theories to figure out how language works, and that's that's wonderful. That's that's a, that's being what we call metacognitive. He's aware of, of of what he's trying to do with his language use, meta linguistic in that case. Yeah, I also I wrote every time I look down because I'm writing something that I'm going to say. Well, one thing David Pearson says is, um, and one of the things I just wrote out is that skills, comprom- uh, skills comprise the infrastructure of reading. I just had like a vision of a building and how all those, there's so many hidden processes in a building, the plumbing, the electricity, they all need to be working, right, to, to have that building in place. But that was just such a, that metaphor, because I'm a very visual person. And it just was like, that's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's a good, great, I want to like say that. The other thing you said um, that I just want to come back to is this this concept of false choices. I I just want to like put that on a t-shirt of just like, you know, like kind of like fake news, like alternate facts, fake news. You know what I mean? Where it's like, because so often in teaching, we're presented these false choices. Like, like, like you have, you can either work on social skills or work on academics. You can either have play or have work. Like the entire system of schooling is based on a, a false choice uh, dichotomy that there's all these, these ors. And so this idea of like, well, of course you can work on phonics and you can work on the sounds letters make and all also, you can build comprehension and kids can be reading texts about the things they really care about. So that that false, I think asking yourself, is this a false choice? Like that's a self check. I'm going to carry with me also like in life. Right. Like yeah, how often it, do you- absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, that's why I, I go back to the basketball analogy and playing the game every day and real reading uh, either by yourself or with, you know, your buddies is where you get to play the game. And it's also the place where you get a chance to orchestrate whatever set of skills are in that infrastructure on that particular day. And hopefully every day that infrastructure is being improved uh, by by the fact that you're engaging in not only learning, but teaching, uh, 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 learning from others. The way I, I, I try to think about that is that skills enable the orchestration. And so we teach phonemic awareness, not for its own sake, but because it enables letter sound decoding. And we teach letter sound decoding because it enables word reading. And we teach word reading because it enables word meaning identification. And we teach that because it's going to feed into comprehension. 
and and then cross-cutting that we've got motivation and stuff like that and the social skills and those all have to be a part of it too and by the way the end result is not just comprehension because comprehension is only a waypoint along the way to doing something else you 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 comprehend you acquire knowledge you use that knowledge to do something in the world maybe i use it to uh, do a project maybe i use it to uh, critique uh, uh, the author maybe i use it to tell a story but doing something maybe i'd use it to change the world and you know so ultimately i guess what that means is that the real goal of phonemic awareness that you start along the way is to change the world at the end of the day <laughs> so <laughs> i mean that's amazing that's such a that's such a great way to think about uh, skills contextualized again. And, and I love the semantics of enabling enabling skill. It's an enabling skill because I think it, it begs the question of what does it enable next, right? You see things on a continuum and not as an endpoint. And I think, you know, you have written about this idea that sometimes comprehension is treated as that endpoint. Like you just ask the question like, so what happened in the story? Check. And this idea that comprehension in of itself is also a waypoint towards this bigger way of living in the world that I make change, that I critique, that I investigate deeper, that I present what I know, that like yeah. all of this leads to like who I am as a human being. Exactly. Exactly. And um, and I, I say that only partially in just as a noble uh, goal, because I really do think it is the goal. Uh, of why we teach the things we do. We, we, we do them so that you can become the kind of human being you want to become down the road. And, and that's so important to keep that in mind, that these are, these are just uh, things we do along the way to help you become the you you are. That also gives like, you know, I think many teachers came to teaching in sort of a noble mindset of I've met very few teachers who actually say they came for the summers off. Right. Um, but it also I do love how that mindset helps me think about phonemic awareness as like phonemic awareness to help kids change the world. You know, um, word solving as a way to help change the world, understanding characters as a way to help change the world, that it it feels part of this grander, bigger mission that. You know, and, and you said that there's so we're acquiring this knowledge, right, to do something with it. And I think that's another question. So, like, I'm like collecting these like, um, like, like, you know, self questions yeah. to self. And one well, is, what does this knowledge help you? That last one, my good colleague and professional friend, Nell Duke, with whom I, I've now written yet another article on what you have to do to promote comprehension. And she's, um, coined this new term called comprehension, and the idea between comprehension is that the job of comprehension isn't done until you've taken some kind of action. Mm. And I think that's really important. And it can be in project-based learning. It could be in critique. It could be in going out in the world and, and you know, doing something with the knowledge that you now have as a result of the reading that you've done. And I think that that's uh, so important just to keep that in mind uh, uh, because otherwise these things do, when when these waypoints become ends unto themselves, that's when we tend to lose kids because they don't see the point of it. And a five-year-old can see the point of what you're doing, how you're using his or her time in the classroom. I remember when I was in first grade, we used to get these lists of instructions 
And the last instruction was always ignore all the other instructions and just write your name on the back. It was like, it was like, um, it was like a scam they were running to teach you to read instructions. Um, and I still remember, cause I am ferociously competitive, like, uh, like unreasonably competitive. I'd be like the instructions would be like, cut a red square, color it blue. And I'd be all in the, I still remember the girl sitting next to me, like smugly with her paper, like thing. And, and the only thing I took away from that entire experience is always read last directions first. (laughs) And I still apply that. I'm still a terrible direction reader. And all I do is look at the last thing. And I have a lot of Ikea furniture that represents my inattentiveness to directions. I tell this story only to illustrate the, the lesson I learned from that was about the last direction and not about it's important to know where you're going before you get there. And I think sometimes our teaching can lose that forest for the trees. It's like, yeah. you know, we've got this cute activity or whatever. And then, you know, I'm, I'm coloring the letter C to look like a cookie, but then like, I don't know what the letter C is, you know? So another anecdote, which you can feel free to um, analyze from an armchair perspective. We had to choose our favorite letter when we were in kindergarten and I chose the letter I. Okay, okay. I, I I don't want to get uh, you know uh, get too much uh, uh, psychology in here, and I I won't ask you why you chose the letter. <laughs> um, anyway, the point being, so much of teaching can be derailed by cuteness and activities, and and that's there's nothing wrong necessarily with having like some things, and but of course I'm like I love when kids are playing, but I think the what's anchoring me in this conversation is is it's every motion we take is bringing to a bigger bolder version of what it means to to be a human being and that's what schools are fundamentally about and in conversations around mapping and and phonics no one's saying don't do it but do it within this this grander scheme of understanding that mapping it's not mapping can turn into reading the last direction first right it's like you use it because it enables you to do something else which enables you which enable which leads us to that bigger point of what do you do in the world right. And, and and the other the other thing about uh, about all this is uh, it, it, I just want to remind us of the basketball analogy again, and that is every day play the game because playing the game is really the point uh, of being a human being and playing the game of uh, human uh, interaction and um, a- activity interaction with the world interaction with your peers interaction with. Uh, the ideas that are floating around uh, everywhere you look, uh, uh, th- those have to be those have to be done every day so that we learn how to use the bits and pieces that sometimes constitute way too much of our curriculum. And so, but it's it's only in the context of of, of use and application that those things become that, that the value of those pieces become apparent. Can I actually want to tug you down a slightly different path, if I can grab your hand and wander deeper into the woods. Um, And that is one of the things that I know you write about. And one of the things that um, I think a lot uh, is from an early childhood perspective is language and language is connection to reading and to understanding and navigating the world. And I was wondering if you would talk just a bit about talking in the classroom, language in the classroom and, and how... How as teachers, we can be like leveraging that or thinking about that or talking about that. Oh, absolutely. If you think about it, uh, talk is the vehicle that animates everything we do, including reading. And I can't imagine a world of reading, of learning to read with that isn't surrounded and, and, and supported by talk. Talk before we read, 
talk uh, after we read, where we get together with a group of our friends, friends and talk about what the story really meant or what ideas were really in that uh, informational piece and the like, and talk along the way. So uh, uh, when we're deconstructing a piece and trying to figure out what the author is really up to and trying to get us to think or do and the like. So talk is involved in uh, orientation uh, to uh, reading. Uh, uh, talk is involved in looking at the fruits of our reading and talk is involved in getting inside a text and deconstructing it uh, to figure out what the author is doing and how the author is trying to do it. You know, if we want to, when we look, for example, at a text and the words the authors use to describe a character and talk about why he, why the author chose those words rather than another set of words to describe a character, all, all those things are animated through talk. So preparation, comprehension, uh, uh, insight, and uh, and analysis are all animated by talk. And, and furthermore, language comes into play in another way because it's the language that that we require that we acquired along the way in our everyday experience uh, that uh, is the basis for uh, understanding what we read in the first place. That is, uh, and that's why the issue of language is so important for English learners and making sure that we pay as much attention to the acquisition of the oral repertoire as we do the written repertoire uh, uh, for English learners and, and use both oral English to, to uh, animate uh, written English acquisition and then using the text on the page to also animate their oral language growth. So I, I think that um, language and talk in particular is uh, implicated uh, all along the way in reading. And by the way, in writing too. I mean, talk is, a, a, a re it, it can be a rehearsal uh, for what we want to uh, do in written language, right? Uh, the, the words we want to put on paper and the like. So we talk through these things. We, we create a talk story and then we might create a, a written story. Yeah. So um, well, as you're saying that, it's like underscoring a couple of things to me. Number one, the importance of like reading not being this isolated activity because who are you talking to, right? So that idea of how do we in our classrooms, <laughs> center if talking is so instrumental to all those aspects of reading how do we keep reading partners or book clubs or things like that to not be the um you know the oh we have two minutes left turn and tell your partner something you read right but instead be this like ongoing structure throughout my reading experience and it also from you know early childhood perspective makes me think a lot about kids play and how in their play they're often telling stories with their bodies and they're and they're also reenacting stories that they've heard and they're making sense of and how sometimes people say well that play is time away but but it's actually time towards sense making and this bigger sort of comprehensive view of like, what does it mean to tell a story? What does it mean to, to understand a story? Well, I know you, you, you've touched on a, on a new area that is not well understood, but is starting to make its way into the curriculum. And that is the whole role of um, image and gesture as a, uh, as a complement to verbal understanding and verbal indicators of, uh, of our understanding and, and um, our, our language development. And I've, um, I've been reading so much uh, about, um, you know, now that we have so many alternative visual um, uh, displays of information available through the internet and the like, and, and they are growing up in a world that uh, goes way beyond the traditional sort of print environment that we've imagined as the learning medium for kids. And 
a lot of our colleagues are learning so much about how uh, kids navigate that world and how they can use it to complement and actually assist their verbal understanding. Uh, by verbal understanding, I mean words or print on page or something like that. So, so we're learning lots and lots about that, but that's a, a whole new era that um, uh, unfortunately is um, exploding at the end, not the beginning of my career. So I leave it to others to- uh, to uh, Let's call it the middle. Let's call but it the middle of your But career. I think it's just fascinating and, and I'm all for it. I'm all uh, for expanding this notion of uh, multimodal understanding and, and representation and like and getting kids to use uh, images of all kinds in their portrayal of what they've understood, for example. Well, and I think it's going back to your and both, right? So it's like the the idea, you know, sometimes folks don't want kids to be drawing to represent things because it's going to be taking away from their opportunity to write or they don't want kids to be talking about, you know, like we 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 make false choice that it can't be both sometimes in our classroom. What I'm hearing from you is like, it's all of it. I think just anecdote number 82, my four-year-old came in and said to me, the rug is, and I was like, look, show me. And the rug was smushed up and he didn't really have the words for it yet. So he's like, the rug is, and I was like, oh, it's, it's, we have to smooth it out. Or, um, great example of a cross-modal communication there. Yeah. That you didn't yet. And I, a man, like a million years ago, I read something in Visible Learning and the Science of How We Learn about how kids who gesture when explaining math choice, math solutions demonstrate deeper understanding than kids who are asked not to gesture. And like, I have no citation for that or any more yeah. to say about it, but just that and we well, can Given what you told me about uh, yourself and your other ways of, um, uh, of interacting with the world, and you said you were a visual learner, I bet when you're trying to represent something that's difficult to understand, you probably take out a notepad and, and do some kind of visual display of your understanding so you can check it out that way. Other people will write something. I always say, I never understand what I think about a topic until I try to write about it because uh, the writing helps me clarify my thinking. Because when I just talk to other people or to myself, I'm too forgiving. And when I put the words on paper, they talk back to me in a way that oral language doesn't. So written language is good too, for uh, especially for being uh, critical of yourself uh, uh, because of the way it talks back to us. Yeah. And at the core of this conversation to me is this sense of inclusivity in both our methods and our, as we help kids say, like, you could show it this way. You could, you could physically do it. You could write it like that. It's, it's about, and, you know, you said it early to like loop back, helping them be the human they want to be includes how I communicate with the world and not saying just that way, but like all of that fits here. If I had to express all this in one phrase, I would call it what we're about in, in, in our uh, literacy and language instruction in schools is helping kids become sense makers. That is, they, they, they have to they have to make sense of the world. They have to help kids develop theory of how things work in the world where things uh, fit together. They, the things go with other things. What I learn over here helps me explain what I'm, I, I'm, I, I have to understand over here and the like. So that notion of sense making, I think, is probably the broadest uh, umbrella for hanging together all these ideas that we've been talking about. 
Well, and I think from the teaching perspective, right? Like I want to write that on the top of where I write my plans, right? So that no matter, even if I'm thinking about what the phonics will be or what the phonemic awareness will be or what what read aloud will be, it comes back to this. It all goes back to making sense. And if we lose sight of that, we've lost sight of the bigger mission for instruction. Like what, what are we yeah. actually doing in the world? And, and, and I think it's, I think it's okay for a teacher to take a skill out of context, deconstruct it, look at it, see how it works. But the minute you do that, you got to put it right back in context and it has to be a part of playing the game that day. That's the way you, you recontextualize it. So you, you can decontextualize it for five minutes to deconstruct it, but then you've got to reconstruct it and recontextualize it in order for it to be a useful tool uh, for kids. So uh, my analogy there is if you look at a coach for a gymnast or a coach uh, for, or a golf coach or, or a tennis coach, they go into deconstruction, right? They, they say, no, no, the foot's written on. You got to be four inches to the left. You got to be four inches to the right. That's that deconstruction, but they don't leave you there. They say, okay, now let's play a set of tennis, right? Or let's go play around the golf. And they see how you apply it. And I think we got to do the same thing with our kids. It's not enough to teach uh, letter sounds. It, it, what matters, and actually there's research to support this, what matters is the degree to which you can use that letter sound knowledge to actually solve a real problem when you're really reading and you need to know what the word says. You know, it's so interesting. I think about it in, I'm thinking a little bit about it in, in math. I, I, I remember, so I was a kindergarten teacher for many years. And, um, you know, one of the things we work on is one-to-one -one tagging and organizing yourself as you're counting. And I had one child who the, the first time they really had that click on that was because they wanted to have hold a wedding in the classroom and they wanted to make wedding invitations for everyone. And for the first time I saw their need for one-to-one -one tagging really drive. So when I when we talked about how to like organize their wedding invitations, by the way, the wedding was in hell, there was a big drama. So <laughs> the cake wasn't made, someone went to eat, it was a whole thing. But we did get the one-to-one, -one that was the relevant moment where we could take pause, pull out, say, this is one way you could count your invitations and keep them organized, right? So um, that's making me really think about that decontextualize, contextualize dance. I love that sporting analogy. And if I was, if I'm going to put it in real time for myself as a teacher, my kids are super on about, um, you know, we saw, we saw a window washer once. Could you have a more New York City experience? Someone dropped down and was washing the windows in our building. We get super interested in window washing. We decide we're going to read a little bit about it, but we're going to first figure out how to, you know, pull that word window. How does that word work? Let's read it. Let's use our phonics to figure out that word window. Now let's put it back and read about it. Right. Or yeah. my kids are super into, um, uh, space or dinosaurs. We're, we're using, we're showing kids your phonics help you figure out about the things you love, not your phonics just help you figure out any word, but the words you love and care about. There's a guy named David Scher, who's a psychologist in Israel, and he talks about phonics as a self-teaching system. That is the reason we teach kids uh, about how words are put together in the life is so that when they come across words they've never seen before, uh, they can they can use that capacity to deconstruct and reconstruct to figure out what the word says and then see if they have a match for it in their oral language and, and the like. And of course, 
they have to use their knowledge of oral language and how words really work. They can't just rely on phonics. They also have to rely on like semantic networks. Like I said, uh, calibrate, but I haven't heard a word like that, but I have heard the word calibrate before. And this is especially important for big words. This is, this is how you read big words, right? Is that you analyze them and then you check them against uh, your, your, uh, your sort of personal portfolio of known words and see if you come up with a match and the like. You're always comparing your hypotheses to your underbelly of knowledge that you carry around with you about how words work, uh, words you know, how uh, knowledge fits together in the world. It's always checking against that to see if uh, it fits together. That's about making sense. It's about making sense. And I'm hearing that both and again, right? So both we're going to, we want kids to understand the phonics in a systematic and reliable manner. And we want it to be connected to the things they care about and how, and that they use it in the game to make sense of the world at large, that, that our minds are big enough to encompass that all these things can be true and coexist in really meaningful ways for kids that we don't have to lose the idea of sense making. We don't have to lose the idea of, um, texts and ideas really strongly connected to kids' identity, nor do we have to say phonics, right? We can yes and and have all those things under that big umbrella. I don't know. Yeah, and and the degree that you can point out to to kids uh, how they can use phonics to solve real problems, uh, it's going to make more sense to them. David, the last sort of big idea I I just wanted to touch on is... I mean, you've said so many things um, that I wrote down and so many great sort of reflective questions I can be asking myself, how to integrate what I'm learning now into what I'm doing going forward. Um, I want to like loop back to this idea of making sure the work we do is really worthy for kids. And you talked um, before, when we had spoken before about some things you ask yourself about criteria of worthiness, You're like what makes something worthy? And I'm wondering if A, you remember that because you listed off a couple of really big beautiful questions. Um, and B, if you do, would you mind just sharing, like when you ask yourself, is this worthy for kids? What are the questions you ask yourself? That's a, uh, that, that's a great question. I was actually thinking about it before uh, we started this, uh, this session. And, and um, you know, the first thing is, is that when I look at this act called reading, can I find a place for it? Does it fit into this entire sense-making uh, system? And I and I think that that's that's what it is. Is it's the system. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, can I imagine a, a way uh, to teach it in which it will actually help kids do something that they can't currently do? So is it it does it have utility? Uh, so the first criterion is is sort of conceptual. Can we think of it as a part of this thing called reading? Secondly, is it uh, does it meet the uh, utility test? If I teach it, will kids be able to do something they couldn't do before? And thirdly, uh, can I teach it in a way that's engaging and leads to this sense making uh, 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 capacity that we we talked about uh, just you, you know just a minute ago and the like? And I and I guess the fourth thing is, um, can I imagine? doing it in a way that is um, engaging both in terms of developing uh, your personal repertoire of of, uh, uh, skills and abilities and dispositions, but also allows you to work with your uh, buddies along the way and and do something engaging in the classroom. So can can I imagine it having this social 
dimension uh, 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 too, because I think learning to work with other kids in, in, in settings is important. Yeah. So those those would be criteria that that uh, that make sense to me. I did want to talk about one other thing though, and that is, I just thought of this as you were brought up that other issue, and that is, I don't know um, what it's like where uh, you are, Christy, but I hear so much discourse to these days about the science of reading. I, I hear it in the in newspaper accounts. I hear it, people talk about, well, we've got to get off just doing these intuitive things and we've got to make sure that what we teach is based upon the science of reading. And the science of reading means so many things to so many people. Uh, and uh, I especially see it connected to a real push to get us to teach phonics first and fast for all kids in first grade. That's where I see it used in the public press and the like. And I just want to put in a word uh, for uh, the science of reading, but but it's not the science of reading that I see represented in the press. It's the science of reading that I see represented, for example, in uh, the two issues of the journal Reading Research Quarterly. Um, get a plug in for the International Literacy Association who publishes that. Last fall and then just about a month ago, they had two issues devoted to this notion of the science of reading. And one of the things I learned from reading the RRQ stuff is that when we talk about the science of reading, let's make sure we talk about all the science, not just the science that happens to support the little piece of this system uh, that uh, that I am particularly enamored of. And what I uh, my my biggest fear is that people will appropriate the notion of science for very particular purposes, and they won't in the process promote the idea that there are many members of the science of reading family and many cousins and many aunts and uncles. And when you invite the science family to the table, you invite not just the ones that you want to talk to, but you invite the whole family. So you don't invite just the science of decoding or the science of letter sound knowledge. You also invite the science of word reading and the science of how you figure out the meanings of, uh, the meanings and pronunciations of words you don't know and what we know about comprehension and what we know about language and what we know about engagement and what we know about motivation and what we know about social dimensions of learning and the like. And a full science of reading is going to be like, is going to be a both and, not an either or uh, proposition. And I just want to put in a word for uh, let's do science, let's use evidence, but let's bring all the evidence to the table, not just the bits we like. Thank you so much, David. Um, I think if there's like a few mantras I'm walking away with, it's one is both, one is both and, um, the second is beware the false choice. Um, and the third is skills enable something bigger. And that biggest thing is sense making. And so I just want to thank you so much. It, it's given me a lot to think about as I approach reading this year, as I, as I, I like other teachers work to strengthen my practice so that all kids become the humans that they If we were passing our grades for summaries, you'd get an A plus. Thank you. Thank you. End now. End scene. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, David. Care, it's been so great what to talk what a treat to work with you. Our thanks to Christy and David for their time today. You can find Christy on Twitter at Mirage Christine and David at P. David Pearson. If you'd like to see more from the Heinemann Forward Ed series, check out Heinemann.com slash forward together, blog.heinemann.com, or the Heinemann Publishing YouTube channel or Facebook page. 
The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.